Well, tonight it is my joy and privilege to, to uh, reintroduce uh, to you uh, one of the greatest blessings that God ever gave this church uh, and gave to me personally, and that is, of course, Adam Tyson. And uh, we uh, just, uh, the Lord gave him to us seven years ago or so, eight years, I guess now, because he's been gone one, so seven years, eight years ago, um, and uh, we had a great run here. Uh, for those seven years, and Adam served so faithfully, so loyally, so skillfully, and uh, was nothing but a blessing, um, and uh, just blessed my life every day that we got to serve together, and I know blessed uh, many of your lives as well, and your family's lives, and um, uh, when I heard that he was going to be back in town uh, for this week, I thought, man, what would summer super study be without Adam, right? We always love doing super studies together and come up with these the crazy ideas for what we were going to teach in the summer, and it was always fun to do that with Adam. And so we, we thought we, we needed to have him be, to be here tonight. He was gracious enough to accept uh, this invitation to preach on prayer. And uh, I think those of you that know Adam, uh, I personally have met few men more passionate for Christ, uh, more godly, uh, more gifted, and uh, uh, more humble uh, and so um, I just, uh, we're thrilled to, to hear how the Lord has just blessed him, and uh, it's, it literally has been one year almost to the, to the day um, that we sent him out to pastor, become the senior pastor of Placerita Baptist Church in, in California, right next to the Master's College, and so he's back here a year later, and uh, I know that um, a number of you are excited to, to kind of get caught up with him, and so afterwards we're going to have a little a dessert reception, and so you're welcome to stay if you'd like, and and uh, he'll he'll catch you up on things that are happening. And Lisa's here with all the kids, and and uh, it'll be just be fun afterwards to hang out a little bit and catch up with the Tysons. But why don't we welcome back Adam Tyson? Well, it is great to be back with you guys. Nothing like preaching on a pulpit with leaves all over it. So, hey, Ken, those were awfully kind words you spoke there just then. Just very humbling. You guys know I'm a sinner, just like you are, saved by the grace of God. And I feel like really this church uh, grew me so much and just the opportunity to learn God's Word and apply God's Word. And even today, as I have the privilege of serving as a pastor at the Plasterita Baptist Church, I think about once a week, hey, if Ken Ramey were in the middle of this situation, what would he do? You know, what would the elders from Lakeside do about this one? And so I've just been so thankful for the opportunity to learn and train under Ken. I consider him my main mentor for, uh, for pastoral ministry. And I love the elders here. I've got to see a couple of you here tonight. I'm just so thankful uh, for all of you, and I'm just thankful for our youth staff that I got to serve with for about seven or eight years, and um, blessed to work with Blake Boys and Chris Steyer even here as well tonight. In fact, Chris and Ken and I went to lunch today, and it was kind of like old times from Lakeside. These guys were uh, cutting up and making me laugh about a lot of old memories and just the present joy of serving in various places for the Lord. And of course, my favorite youth pastor right now is Billy Blakey. Give it up for Blakey. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So... Super excited about the camp you guys are doing. What's the name of the camp, the new summer camp? Revive. There you go. I saw the trailer on the, on the, on the internet, so it looks like a great camp. It's going to be fantastic. So, well, it's, it's just a joy. Lisa and I left here a year ago with five kids, and we're returning tonight 
with five kids, just to keep the number <laughs> straight. Somebody was asking me earlier, how many did you leave with and how many do you have now? It's five and five, all right? So we're, we're about halfway to where we want to get. We want to have five more. I'm just kidding. I think we're done, but the Lord's in control of all that. And uh, it's just a joy. We miss you guys. We think about you often. I keep up with some of you on Facebook. And uh, you guys just need to come and hang out with us in California. One or two of you have been out there, uh, but more of you need to come, all right? You can, just, you can come to Disneyland. It's okay. I know you want to come to Disneyland, come to the beach, but then just stop by our house for a little bit, all right? Come to our church for a service. We'd love to have you. And all the youth here, you know you're headed to the Master's College, right? So, Cannon, Cannon are you doing some good work this summer? All right, so Cannon is with us there at the Master's College. You guys know Tim and Katie Drum. They're with us at, uh, at the church at Placerita Cannon. And I'm trying to think, is there anybody else? Uh, more, more on their way, hopefully. So you guys come on out and visit with us anytime. So it's a joy to be able to preach tonight about prayer. It's, uh, it's a subject I feel uh, ill-equipped to do because I know that it's a weakness in my own life. And I'm convicted, even though I've preached on prayer a number of times, uh, every time I preach on it, I just feel like, you know, I'm still, I don't know why... I'm preaching like this because I'm not doing this, and so I, I just need to confess to you uh, before we get into it tonight, and my wife can account that while we try to pray, and we do pray regularly, uh, I, I don't pray near as much as I ought to, and so I'm kind of preaching to me tonight. Hope that's okay. You guys can just listen in, all right? So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at a, a text that, uh, that is one of my favorite prayers in all of Scripture, one of Paul's prayers here in this great book of Ephesians. I happen to be preaching through Ephesians right now at Placerita, so things are going really well out there. We're having a great time. We feel the church's full support and, and uh, joy and involvement. There's a great uh, unity there, and, uh, and so we've, we had a great study. We actually did this particular prayer in five weeks, and so we took a five, five weeks and took our time through this prayer. I'm gonna, I tried to consolidate all the best stuff in one sermon tonight, and Chris I already warned me, Adam, don't do it, dude. You're going to go too long. Don't do it. But we're going to see how it goes. And so uh, a, prayer empowered, uh, a prayer for empowerment is the title, To Live for Christ. And I know that the subtitle you have is a little different maybe from the, from the series, so we'll see how this fits in. But we're in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Paul writes this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far abundantly more than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, Father, we do bow before you this night and pray for your blessings on this message, God, that you would use it in the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of the inspired Word of God to challenge us and to encourage us and to allow us to learn what it's like to pray prayers that would bring you the most glory, that would bring you the most honor, that would demonstrate our utter dependence on you to do far more than, ever, than all we could ever ask or imagine. And so tonight, God, we pray that you would be exalted and that you would do a great work in our hearts to encourage us, God, in our need to pray more often and more 
uh, purposefully to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I wanted to start off tonight by just asking you a question in vain with, uh, with J.C. Ryle's book, A Call to Prayer. I think most of you maybe have read that book. If you haven't, that would be my one recommendation as a book on prayer to you. It's J.C. Ryle, A Call to Prayer. I believe it's in the Resource Center. And he kind of starts off that book asking some questions that are so convicting. And I kind of edited that a little bit. But his question was, like, was kind of like this. My question to you tonight is not, uh, do you believe that prayer works My question to you tonight is not, have you ever had a prayer answered? Uh, My question to you tonight is not, do you believe in the power of prayer? Or my question to you tonight would not be, do you think that it is a good thing to pray? The question is not, do you believe that prayer is vital to your spiritual growth? And the question is not, do you believe that it is impossible to accomplish anything without prayer. But my question to you tonight would be more simple than that, and if you've read the book, you know it. The question is this, do you pray? Do you pray? Do you really pray? Do you ever feel that you're so busy in your day that you just don't have enough time to pray? Have you ever had your schedule so loaded with just all kind of stuff and errands that you need to run and classes you need to take and projects at work that you just don't know how in the world you're going to get it all done. Have you ever been so busy that you just thought, today, something's got to go. In my life on this day, there's no way I can do it all, so something has got to go by the wayside. And if you have, what is that that usually goes by the wayside? Is it your sleep? No, not for some of us. Is it your entertainment? Well, we can't live without that. Is it your time on the internet? Well, no. Is it your time on Facebook? Certainly not. Is it your time catching up on your favorite sports team? Well, not if you're a good sports fan. Is it your meal time? No. If we're going to be honest, most of us, if something's going to go, it's probably going to be prayer. It's going to be time with God. It's going to be time in His Word or time in prayer because we think we can somehow get by that day without prayer. In fact, the great reformer, Martin Luther, said this, said this about prayer. He said, work, work from morning until late at night. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall have to spend the first three hours in prayer. How convicting is that to think on that busiest day that you have no way that you can possibly accomplish all that you're supposed to do that day, that instead of skipping prayer, he would uh, apparently get up earlier and spend the first three hours in prayer so he could get it all done. And if we had to be honest tonight, many of us would admit that our prayer time with God is what suffers the most in our busy lives. And to what effect do we suffer When we don't pray, does God strike us dead? Are you threatened with miserable disaster if you skip one day of prayer? Can you make it without prayer? I'm afraid that we think that we can't. R.A. Torrey states this, quote, He is cunning. He is mighty. He never rests. He is continually plotting the downfall of the child of God. If the child of God relaxes in prayer, the devil will succeed in ensnaring him. And so tonight, we have the opportunity 
to learn a little bit about prayer. In fact, we have the opportunity to look at one of the most powerful prayers prayed in all of Scripture. In Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, is the second of two major prayers that are prayed in Ephesians. The first prayer is in chapter 1, verses 17 through 23, and it's really a prayer of enlightenment that we might know God. And this second prayer that we're going to look at tonight is more of a prayer of empowerment to live for God. And so let me just say again at the beginning of this message that prayer is about talking to God. If you want to hear from God, then you should have been here last week because Fred Sabins did an excellent job talking to us about how God speaks to us. Sometimes we think, well, prayer is a kind of a two-way communication, right? Well, not exactly. God has already spoken to us through His Word. And so if you feel like God's speaking to you through prayer, hopefully He's just reminding you of something in the Bible that He's already said and stated to you because there's no new revelation. And so really, uh, studying the Bible or reading the Bible is God speaking to us. Tonight, we're going to talk about what prayer is, which is us speaking to God us speaking to God. And so last week, again, you learned about God talking to you through His Word. Tonight is about us talking to God through prayer. And so tonight, we're going to look at four requests here in this prayer, and then it ends with one powerful praise. Here's the first request in this passage that we're looking at tonight. The first request is that, excuse me, is this, that you would be strengthened with power that you would be strengthened with power. Again, verses 14 through 16, Paul starts off saying, for this reason, I bow on my knees before the Father. And really what's happening here is Paul finally gets back to praying a prayer that he started at the beginning of chapter 3. In fact, if you look at the beginning of chapter 3 here in Ephesians, it says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he goes into a, a, a period where he just keeps talking about what he's been talking about up to this point of Ephesians, which is really statements of fact about God and statements of fact about Christ and how we have a high position in Christ if you've been born again. And because of this, and because both Jews and Gentiles have become one in God's church, he wants to pray that they would live that way. And so he begins to pray about this in the beginning of chapter 3, and then he's just like, well, I've got to do a little bit more teaching about what it means to be a steward of God's grace, about what it means to be a mystery of the gospel. And so he's going to teach on that a little bit more. And then finally in verse 14, he gets back to his his prayer, and he says, for this reason, speaking of all that he's been discussing thus far in Ephesians, that high position you have in Christ, called out of darkness into light, that you've been predestined, that you would walk uh, with him in love and in, in obedience, that he's now saying, I'm going to pray that you guys would be able to do this. And so he's bowing on his knees. And I think it's interesting that that word bow is only used three other times in the New Testament. It's used in Romans chapter 11, verse 4, where Paul tells us of how God reminded Elijah that 7,000 men had not bowed the knee to Baal. He uses the word, or the word is used also in Romans 14, 11, where Paul is telling us how God declares that he alone is God and that every knee shall bow and every tongue will give praise to him. And then the third place it's used in the New Testament over there, then this text is uh, Philippians 2, verse 10, where he says uh, that God has highly exalted Christ uh, above every other uh, name and at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and the under earth. And so obviously we see that in these passages that there is the bending of the knee which conveys worship 
and submission to a supernatural God. And this bending of the knee sometimes causes us to ask a question about the posture of prayer. Like, when I pray, should I also bend my knees? So let's talk just a moment, if we can, about the posture of prayer. And you, you need to understand that here is, is described a physical posture, if you will, actually bowing down. And, uh, and the question comes up, is that anywhere commanded in Scripture? And I'm here to tell you tonight, it's actually not commanded in Scripture. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, you must pray this way with a certain type of physical posture. But throughout the Bible, we have a lot of different examples of people assuming various physical positions as they pray. In fact, Abraham stood before the Lord as he prayed. He did this as he prayed to God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. And he was standing. Uh, standing was the Jewish custom with prayer. That's why you even see at the Wailing Wall, if you just got back from Israel, they don't kneel. A lot, of, a lot of Jews, some of them kneel, but some of them are just standing. And they're just kind of rocking back and forth because the custom also can be that you stand when you pray, even as Abraham did, Genesis 18, 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord, and the context is in prayer. So you can also stand while you pray. You could also sit while you pray. David actually sat before the Lord. When David prayed about the temple in 1 Chronicles 17, 16, he sat before the Lord. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Well, how about Jesus. Jesus, at one point in the Bible, is mentioned as being is laying down in prayer. He's actually laying, we think, probably flat on his face, and he did this in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was flat on his face before God. Matthew 26, 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then we know that Paul knelt before the Lord. That's what we're reading about here in this passage. And so there, there are other examples in the, in the Scripture. I just wanted to see, get you to see a few so that you know there's really no rhyme or reason to what physical posture you should take in prayer. But might I suggest that a variety can be helpful. If you've ever struggled in your prayer life, you know that sometimes you might fall asleep or you might be laying down, you need to get up, you might need to take a prayer walk because uh, that helps you focus. I can tell you one thing, when I was a kid growing up, there was times I would get up early in the morning or maybe you know, wake up a little bit early and I'd hear like my mom kind of stirring, sometimes in the kitchen getting breakfast ready and then you know, I'd kind of be getting dressed and then I would, I would go up into to the kitchen family room area and there are many times I would, I would see my mom on her knees uh, by, and on the couch in the family room with her Bible open, and she's just on her knees praying. And uh, I just had an impact on me. I think there's just something about it. I remember when I first came to this church to serve uh, as a youth pastor that Ken uh, and, and the staff would get on their knees every Tuesday afternoon to pray. I remember praying with the elders. I was just so moved the first time that we kind of prayed in a group that uh, to Tom Walters, I don't know if Tom's here tonight, but if Tom got down on his knees uh, to pray. And you just think, you know what, while it's not required by the Bible, while it's not said thou shalt get on, on your knees, and if you do, you're more holy, and if you don't, then you're just kind of half, half-hearted praying. That's not true, but it is interesting, isn't it, that we see all these examples in the Bible, and it does do something to encourage us. But I can tell you what God is concerned about. While he may not be concerned about your physical posture in prayer, he certainly is concerned about your spiritual posture. He's, he's very concerned about your spiritual posture in prayer. What do you mean by that? I mean that you have an attitude 
of submission. That when you come to pray, you have this attitude of, I'm kneeling before Almighty God. Whether you're actually doing it physically or not, in your heart, that's kind of what you're thinking. That's how you picture yourself. And it seems to be clear that Paul had this attitude of submission to the Lord. That bowing down for him probably represented this attitude of being lowly-minded. I mean, verse 15 talks about how God is over everybody. He's bowing on his knees before the Father, Verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I mean, how can I not bow down? I'm praying to the God who created everything and everybody. He's supreme. I'm a nothing. I'm a nobody, and he's everything. And we kind of have this idea that bowing down can represent a disposition of humility towards someone of a higher rank or a higher dignity or a higher authority. I don't know about Some of you who've been to Uganda or maybe Honduras, you guys just got back, but in some of those third world countries, when you're out in the bush, oftentimes the women and even the men, when they come to greet you, will just kind of start to kneel down, and they'll just kind of kneel down and out of respect and honor for you. And I'm always really convicted, like, hey, don't kneel in front of me. You know, if you're going to kneel, kneel in front of Jesus, you know, and I don't make a big scene about it because I want to honor them as they do what showing honor is in their culture, but I don't know how, how it makes you feel. It makes me feel very uncomfortable. I never want anybody to bow down to me, except my kids. No, just kidding. But, you know, <laughs> but the idea is, is that we do want to bow down before God, and we, we want to bow before him. I love, I love uh, Psalm 95 that kind of pictures that, 90, Psalm 95, 6 and 7, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And it's just a reminder, I'm a nothing. I'm nobody. He is everything, and I can't help but have this posture of submission to God. Maybe another heart posture would be just the idea of having an intense passion and emotion. We do see references in the Bible of people bowing the knee before God in times when they feel extremely passionate or even emotional. We see this with Daniel when he heard that King Darius had signed the edict devised by the jealous commissioners and satraps forgiving, or excuse me, forbidding the worship of any god besides the king. And then in Daniel 6.10 we read, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went in to his house where he, he, he had his windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave God thanks, gave thanks before God just as he had done previously. So this was just a time of intense emotion and passion where he's like, I've got to get on my knees before God. And there have been a few times where Lisa and I have just kind of got on our knees in prayer. You know, we try to pray together every day as couples. I believe by God's grace, we really honor that principle. But sometimes our prayers are a little bit short and not quite as energetic as they ought to be. But occasionally, if it's earlier in the day, we'll say, honey, I'll say, honey, let's just bow and pray right now. We got a minute, the kids are doing something, uh, we got a minute, let's just kneel, and we have a little, a little thing at the foot of our bed, uh, it's, it's really the, 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 the little chair where the kids go when I tell them, go to the bedroom, and they sit there because they know they're about to get it, uh, but uh, that's, also, that's also where we pray. Sometimes we'll kneel right there and just pray together because it's in a, a time where we can be a little bit more intense and purposeful in, in our prayer. So it's not so much about, about the posture externally as it is about your heart to submit to God. And so I want to talk also just for a moment out of verse 16 about the power of prayer. So we've covered 14 and 15. Look at 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit 
in your inner being. And so this verse starts to introduce the first of what we call henna clauses in the original language, which just gives us the the reason, the purpose, or even the result of what Paul anticipates the answer to his prayer being. In other words, what he's praying for, he's anticipating that that will be the result because he knows God is going to work in a powerful way through his prayer. And this verse talks about being strengthened with power. And you're strengthened with power because God gives you power. Get this, he gives you power out of his power. He gives you power out of his power because of this. Look again at 16. It says, according to the riches of his glory. And since since it says according to the riches of his glory, it doesn't mean out of, but according to, which simply means this. If you were to go up to a poor man and say, hey, look, I'm raising money for my trip uh, overseas for a mission trip, and, and when I'm raising support, do you have anything you want to give? And that poor man gave you a 5 or a 10 or a $20 bill, you would be grateful. But if you went out to Bill Gates, and you happened to know him, and you were able to approach him and say, hey, Bill Gates, I need some money for my mission trip, and he were to give you a 20, you'd look at him and be like, come on, bro, what's the deal? You got like billions of dollars, and you give me a 20, you're not giving According to your wealth, you're giving out of your wealth. So this text is reminding us that God gives not out of, like just loosely or generically. He gives in accordance with. And listen, friends, tonight, God has much wealth. God is the owner of the entire universe, and he has all the power in the world, and his riches are limitless, and he's completely without bounds. And that is the exact measure by which Paul implores God to empower the Ephesian believers. Why should we ask so little of so great a king? When someone once asked a tremendous favor of Napoleon, it was immediately granted to him because, Napoleon said, he honored me by the magnitude of his request. Think about that for a moment that he honored Napoleon by the magnitude of his request. And so the question would be for us tonight, are you honoring God by the magnitude of your request? That when you pray to God, are you asking for little bitty things? Are you asking for God to do great big things? You see, little faith, little prayers. Much faith, much prayer. And I'm afraid that the idea today is that we just don't pray for enough. We kind of get used to reasonable Uh, responsible requests from God that we know he's prone to answer instead of stepping out of our comfort zone, moving up the ladder a little bit, and and just the, the earnestness of our prayer radically praying for God to do something that we know only he can do. Well, listen to the words of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. He writes another refrain that says this, thou are coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such that no one could ever ask too much. Have you ever asked too much from God? Or are you guilty, as I am, of asking for too little? You see, God answers according to his riches. No one can ever ask for too much. So not only does God give proportionately, but he also gives powerfully. There in verse 16, there are two words used in the original language to come up with that word strengthen. The first word is dunamis, which has the meaning of power, ability, 
capability of acting. The second word is a complementary word, which means to strengthen by exercise. And so when you read the word there in verse 16 where he says that he may grant you to be strengthened, he's kind of hinting at, look, it's by exercise. The more you pray, the stronger you get, uh, the more you'll receive. And the word strengthen is actually also in the passive mood, which means that it's something that only God ultimately does to you. So you're commanded to pray more But as you pray more, it's God that's the one that's actually given you the strength because the answer to prayer comes from God's power and not uh, from your own. And so you and I must pray for God's power to strengthen our inner man. That's what he's praying for at the end of verse 16 there. He said, look, I'm praying uh, for power through the Spirit in your inner man. I want your soul. I want your heart. I want your mind. I want your conscience. I want all of that immaterial that makes up that part of you that no one can see. I want that man strengthened. And the way he gets strengthened is by praying desperately to God that God would, 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 uh, would answer that prayer in accordance with his riches. Well, that's the first request that Paul prays here, which is really an example, a model that we could certainly follow. The second request is this, number two, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. And so we're moving to verse 17. Again, we see a henna clause here. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And so here we see a little bit about, about Christ's dwelling. I'm going to talk for a moment, if I can, about the location of Christ's dwelling. This word dwelling uh, describes the location of where it is that Christ dwells. That word uh, actually means dwell or live. It's used in Matthew 2.23, and he lived in a city called Nazareth. That's where Jesus dwelt. That's where he worked his ministry. That's where he lived. That's where, that was his habitation. And so the word is used that way. It's just simple location is what's going on here. And God's presence has always been in the heavens from eternity past. Uh, when he created the earth, he certainly walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, his presence was represented as a smoking fire pot as, uh, as he gave the Abrahamic covenant. His presence was on the top of Mount Sinai as he gave the Ten Commandments. His presence was in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. His presence was in the tent of meeting. Then his presence was in the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. His presence was in the temple filled with his Shekinah glory. Then God was here with us in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And then God was with us here in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, when, uh, when the church began. And now God's presence is in you. His presence in the person of Christ, He lives where? According to this verse, Jesus Christ dwells in your heart. And He's praying to that end, that Christ would dwell there locationally. That's where He would dwell. H- have you ever heard about the four-year-old girl who went to the doctor's office with a fever, and the doctor looked in her ears, and uh, he said, who's in there? Donald Duck? And she said, no. And so he looked into her nose and said, who's in there? Mickey Mouse? And the little girl said, no. And so he, uh, he then put his stethoscope on her heart and said, who's in there? Barney? And she said, no. Jesus lives in my heart. Barney's on my underwear. <laughs> That little girl knew where Jesus lived, right? Jesus lives in our heart. And sometimes we talk about it in our culture like, well, you know, it's more than just asking Jesus into your heart because, you know, it's about God's sovereign and salvation, and he is. 
But let's just be real with this verse. That's where he dwells. According to this verse, he dwells in your heart. That's the location of where Christ has his habitation. And so this word dwelling not only talks about location, but it also talks about the fullness, the fullness of Christ dwelling. God dwells in you. I mean, all of the triune God dwells in you. It would be wrong to say Jesus, and Jesus only dwells in my heart, not the Father and not the Spirit, because it's all of God that dwells in you. God dwells in you, Ephesians 2.22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Um, God the Son dwells on you. That's this passage, that Christ may dwell in your heart. God the Holy Spirit dwells on you, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? God's Spirit dwells in you. And guess, guess who else dwells on you? Not only God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but who else? It's not, not necessarily a who, but in it, the Word of Christ dwells in you. Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so we see what's going on here is that this prayer is part of a Trinitarian prayer. We see the, uh, God the Father in verses 14 and 15, God the Holy Spirit in verse 16, and now we see Christ here in verse 17. And so dwelling tells us about the location, tells us about the fullness, but maybe most importantly, dwelling describes the intimacy of Christ dwelling. The word dwell in this passage has to do with dwelling in the sense of settling down in a place and making a permanent residence there. God wants to have an intimate relationship with all of his children. And so when you invite him into your heart and your heart becomes his home, he never leaves. That's where he stays. He's not like an unwanted family member that kind of shows up and wants to bum a room off of you for a day, a week, a month, and you're like, when's Uncle Jimmy leaving? You know, the idea is that when Christ comes to take up residence in your house, you want him there. You would never want him to leave, and guess what? He's not leaving. When he comes into you, you've been changed forever. And so from, from the core of the definition of this word, we see that God comes to dwell in your heart as a friend and not as a foreigner. I read a book earlier this year that I'm sure some of maybe the older saints in here have seen and read. It's originally published in 1946 by Robert Munger, entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. Remember that book? Just a little book out there, great little book that uh, just reminds us about this principle, My Heart, Christ's Home, and, and he really addresses this idea of Christ dwelling in, in your heart from a fictional perspective. And so while I don't agree with everything in the book, I think the big picture of it certainly captures the point. And in the book, he talks about what would it be like if Jesus came to, to, to your house and your house is kind of represents your heart, and he were to come and knock on the door. And so in the book, he gives this illustration that he came into this guy's house, and he first came into the library, which represented the mind. And he begins to look in there and see a lot of worldly philosophy and a lot of worldly thinking and worldly worldviews in there. And so he begins to take those books out and replace that with his word so that this person would think truth about God. And then he comes into the dining room of appetite, and he finds many sinful desires listed on the worldly menu. And in the place of such things as prestige and materialism and lust, he puts humility, meekness, and love, and all the other things that a true believer should hunger and thirst for. And then he comes into the living room of fellowship, 
where he finds many worldly companions and activities, and he replaces these things with discipleship and true fellowship for the purpose of spurring each other on towards love and good deeds. And then he goes into the workshop where this man was only making toys and trinkets that had no eternal value, and he began to help him learn how to make things that would last for eternity. And then he goes into the bedroom, He begins to challenge this guy in his own purity and his relationship that he has with with other people. And then he smells something. Just when you think the house is finally all cleaned up, he kind of smells something else. And it's just like something just reeks. You know, that happens in our house or in our van like once a month. We're like, what in the world? You know, we either find, you know what we find, either, either a diaper or a bottle of milk, you know, and it's been sitting there for a while, and we're like, who didn't throw that out? You know, it just kind of reeks, and you got to search until you find it and get rid of it. And so Jesus is in this house, and there's one more thing, and then finally, he looks into the, to the hall closet, and there's some stench of some secret sin in this person's life that needs to be cleansed and needs to be, needs to be dealt with. And then Jesus finally settles down, really makes himself at home to where he can just dwell comfortably in that house. And I wonder, I wonder tonight if Jesus feels at home in your heart. I wonder if Jesus were walking around in, in your heart that he would find things that need utter cleansing. And we know that's true to a degree of all of us. But are there things in your life tonight that you're like, you know what, I'm not making my heart a pleasant home for Christ to dwell in. And I, I want to I have him help me, cleanse me through repentance and confession of all that's in my life so that Christ could dwell in my heart with this comfortable, uh, intimate uh, relationship that I can have with him and not us be distracted by the stench of the hall closet. Well, Christ dwelling in your heart um, also has the idea of, of you being rooted and grounded in love. And so the second part of verse 17 is talking about your love for Christ, that if you have love that's rooted and grounded in, 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 in a proper way, then you'll have this kind of love for Christ. In fact, this, this, these words rooted and grounded, this word rooted is an agricultural metaphor. It, it makes us immediately think of a tree, while the next word grounded makes us think of a building. And so rooted is this agricultural picture, while grounded is actually an architectural picture. The the Apostle Paul uses these two metaphors since they have great similarities. And clearly, the leading and most central idea is that of permanence. We see two pictures, a great tree that's not going anywhere. It's solid, its roots are down deep, and it's not moving in the same way with a great big building. It has a deep foundations that, that those, those things are sunk way down deep in the ground and concrete everywhere. And so there's the idea of depth and firmness and permanence and durability. And he's saying this is the kind of love that you've got to have for Christ. This is what he expects of us. This is what Paul's praying for, that he would want Christ to dwell in his heart, that he would be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted means deeply rooted. So we must not think of a sapling tree here, but that hundred-year-old oak tree. It, it, we're reminded in Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream, that it does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves remain green, and it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And that's the kind of trees that we're called to be. A tree, some trees, you know, are just as large underground as they are 
above the ground, right? You learn that around the time of hurricane season. I just saw a sign on I-45 last night, you know, it's hurricane season here in Texas. I'm like, thank goodness I live in California. You know, all we have to worry about is earthquakes, you know, no big deal. Uh, But the idea is like, you see some of those trees uprooted. We had, I think, at least three trees in our time here that were uprooted, and you see those huge, uh, you know, uh, roots underneath. And so the idea is that that, that tree of your love for, for God's got to be rooted and grounded in a deep way because uh, that's what God expects of us. That's what God calls of us, and that's, that's the permanence of our love for Him and Him abiding in us. Well, let me move on to our third prayer request, which is this, number three, that you would know the depth of God's love, that you would know the depth of God's love. And in verses 18 and 19, we read this, um, that you may have strength to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And so this prayer is that you may have the strength to comprehend. And the word for strength is a rare word here that means to have strength enough or to be able to. It's used together with the word comprehend. And the word for comprehend means to seize or to lay hold of. And when it is used in this middle voice, it means that you have a responsibility to grasp or to understand or to comprehend mentally. It can also mean that you seize or capture or overtake it. What we're saying here is it means that you've got to be strengthened that you can really understand who this God is, that you can have a full understanding of Him. And then he goes in to talk about how we're to share this, this, this understanding that we have, that this strength that we have to comprehend these truths with who? With all the saints. And so we also are praying for the community to share it with. Not only are we praying for the ability to just understand God's Word and the truths He's about to introduce here, but also that we have the same community that we have together with all the saints, that we need the Holy Spirit to teach us these things in the ultimate sense, but in a practical sense, we need each other. We need to be discipling each other. We need good biblical expositors. We need faithful biblical counselors. We need those on youth staff that will disciple us and come alongside us while your parents should always be your main uh, discipler. The idea is that we need each other. We need to share this this knowledge together with all the saints. And so he's praying this also. uh, The next little bullet point here is that pray for the ability to comprehend the dimensions of Christ's love. This is what he's really getting to here in this little section. He wants us to understand, have the ability to understand with all the other saints, with all other believers, these dimensions in verse 18 of the love of Christ. And so the end of verse 17 talks about our love being rooted and and, and grounded. This verse talks about God's love for us. And this is one of the most read, most prayed, and most thought of verses in the Bible. What is the breadth and length, and height, and depth of the love of Christ. James Montgomery Boyce gives this finding in his commentary on Ephesians. He says this, quote, A couple of centuries ago, when Napoleon's armies opened a prison that had been used by the Spanish Inquisition, they found the remains of a prisoner who had been incarcerated for his faith. The dungeon was underground. The body had long since decayed. Only a chain fastened around the ankle bone, cried out of his confinement. But this prisoner, long since dead, had left a witness on the wall in the small dismal cell of this faithful soldier of Christ. He had scratched a rough cross with four words surrounding it. 
in Spanish. Above the cross was the Spanish word for height. Below it was the word for depth. To the left of the word was the word for width. And then to the right side of the cross was the word for, for, uh, for length. And so clearly this prisoner wanted to testify to the surpassing greatness of the love of Christ perceived even in his suffering. And so love in these dimensions is in every direction and to the greatest distance. It goes wherever it is needed for as long as it is needed. And the early church father, Jerome, said that the love of Christ reaches up to the holy angels and down to those in hell. Its length covers the men on the upward way, and its breadth reaches those drifting away on evil paths. Now, I don't think that breadth and length and height and depth represent four specific types or categories of love, but simply suggest its vastness and completeness, that in whatever spiritual direction we look, we can see God's love. And so maybe I could just mention it quickly in the book of Ephesians. We see the breadth of Christ's love in Ephesians 2, 13 through 15, where he's been talking about how believing Jews and Gentiles who were opposites who hated each other, became one in Christ. And in that passage he says, But now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And so even in this epistle, we see that breadth of God's love bringing these believers together. The second dimension of Christ's love is the length of Christ's love. And here I think it could be perceived that we're talking about time from eternity past. And so in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, we read that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. So all the way from eternity past, and the length is all the way to eternity future. And so in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7, he says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so there we see a picture there of the length of God's love. We can't take it for granted. We need to marvel in the fact that he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, and you'll still be in Christ after this world is over because of his endless love for you. And then the third dimension of love would be the height of Christ's love. And this has to do with the distance, maybe, that separated us from God. It's like if you're standing next to a tall building, it's immeasurably high, and you're just kind of intimidated by its height. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verse Six, we're reminded that in, in Jesus, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's how high that we've been placed in Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so how unbelievable to think of the height of God's love. And then the fourth dimension there is the depth of Christ's love. And this had to do with the degree of God's love, how it reaches down to save us. We know he takes us up to the heavens, but you understand the depth is you were dead, Ephesians 2.1. You were dead. I, I was dead. We were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. You had no life in you whatsoever, completely dead. And yet he made you alive. 
together with Christ. And so that might be a description of, of, of the depth of God's love. And so I, I love to think about that, that hymn that we sometimes sing that we're not sure who the author is that goes like, like this, could we with, uh, with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And so this is the kind of love that, uh, that we're supposed to understand. And not only are we supposed to understand this, we're to have this experiential knowledge. Notice in verse 19 it says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's hinting at, look, it's not good enough just to know about it. You've got to experience it. I mean, you can talk about it all day long that you have this, that you know all these facts about the gospel. But if you don't have an experiential knowledge of this, then you have yet to have really tasted what it is that God desires for you to know. Well, let me move on to our fourth request here. It would be this in verse 19, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And so he kind of ends part of this prayer here, but, but he's not fully ending it. He's going to say a couple other things in verses 20 and 21, but this is his fourth formal request, and that you would be filled with the fullness of God. And let me just say that this last request is rightly described by many as the climax of this prayer. It is, if, it is as if we've been climbing a mountain through Paul's prayer, and every step we're going higher and higher in our understanding of God. And our desire is to live for God in our everyday lives. And here in this final request, we finally reach the summit of this prayer. And Paul's not satisfied with where these Ephesian believers are in their life. And neither should we ever be satisfied with where we are with God, that we're wanting to, to crawl higher and to climb higher through prayer, that we might understand the love of Christ that we just described, and that we might understand and experience the fullness of God. And so here Paul is begging God in this prayer that they would be strengthened with power, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, and that they would be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. He wants them to know the unsearchable riches of Christ. He, he wants them to know that there are higher and greater and even infinite possibilities in God. He is anxious not only for the Ephesians to understand the fullness of God, but to partake in the fullness of God. Oh, how we should long both to know and partake in the fullness of God. So how do you do that? How do you partake in the fullness of God? Well, I think when I think about the fullness of God, I, I, just, I think about His attributes. I think it kind of starts there that we too often forget to, to meditate on God. And so we have these things in theology called the incommunicable attributes of God that we ought to be thinking about as we think about the fullness of God, His omniscience, His omnipotence, His omnipresence, His independence, His immutability, he, the fact that He's eternal the unity of God. And here's a, a summary of these incommunicable attributes of God. Well, those we can actually possess uh, because they're incommunicable. They, they don't communicate with us. He's divine. We're human. But we can partake in the communicable attributes of God. And so those are the kind of attributes that we want to experience in, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. A.W. Tozer writes, the truth is that man who walked among us was a demonstration not of unveiled deity, but of perfect humanity. And so the idea is if we want to be like Christ, 
We want to share with Him these communicable attributes with Him. And when I think about communicable attributes of God, when I think about that I've been called to be an imitator of God, Ephesians 5.1, I think about the fruit of the Spirit. If I were just to summarize the, in, the, the communicable attributes, I would summarize it from Galatians 5.22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so this clause, that you may be filled with the fullness of God, is tra- it could be translated that you're up to the level of, you're to the measure of, you're filled unto God. And so it's an amazing thing to think, how again can I be filled with the fullness of God? Well, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones illustrates this principle this way in his commentary on this passage. He says, I once heard an illustration which I found helpful in showing how we can have the fullness and yet have more of it. It involved blowing air into a balloon. You blow it into a certain amount of air, and you can say that it is full of air. You then blow more air into, into it, and you can still say it is full of air, yet bigger than it was before. It is full of air on both occasions, but it had become bigger than it was at first. Then in case you don't get that picture, he gives another one. Or you can take a bottle and fill it with water in the sea. You can say that that bottle is now full of the sea, but then you can take a great tank and do likewise. The bottle and the tank both have fullness, but they do not both have the same amount. The fullness of the sea is always the same, and the little bottle has the same characteristics of the sea in its fullness as the tank has, though in terms of gallons, there is a great difference." Thus, it becomes possible for me to grow in grace as well as in the knowledge of the Lord. It does not mean that we are all identical because we all have the fullness of God. It does not mean that we all have the same gifts. The apostle goes on in the next chapter to say that there are varieties, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers, and so on. The gifts differ and the graces differ, but God is always one. And the fullness of God is in all of us. We are all one, yet not identical in every respect. And so the idea is that if you're saved, in a sense, you are full of God. It's not like, it's not like you're not full of God. You're a Christian. Christ dwells in you. Uh, but you can still be fuller. It's the, the idea of, of that you can be filled with the Spirit. You're, you're, the Spirit of God lives in you, but we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And so this is a radical prayer uh, that Paul is giving here about being filled with the fullness of God. Now, after this radical four request, he ends with what we call a doxology. He ends with this idea of an outburst of praise to God in response to what he's just been praying about. And so in verse 20 and 21, he says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And it almost seems like the end of this is kind of radical. I mean, he breaks out in this praise, and he prays in such an amazing way that we can really be challenged about. Remember earlier when we talked about going to the king and asking for a big request because he gives in accordance with his riches? Well, notice here in verse, notice here in, uh, verse 20, it, it, how, we could ask the question, how much is God able to do? 
When we just think about how much can he do, verse 20 helps answer it this way. I I could say this. I could say he could do all that you can ask. How much can God do? Well, he can do all that you can ask. He says in verse 20, he's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And so we could start off saying, well, what can God do? Well, he can do all you can ask. And so we start thinking about what are you asking about? What do you ask God for? I think a lot of us get into the habit of not asking for much. And as I've been meditating on this, I've been thinking, well, why don't we ask God for more? And I think it's, it may be because part of our upbringing as, as uh, conservative people that you learn as a child that if you ask for a cookie, your mama might give it to you. But if you ask for two, she says, no way, just one cookie. And so if you ask, you know, for a Chick-fil-A sandwich, you eat that, you need what? Another one, right? So you ask for another one, your mama says, no way, dude, one sandwich is enough. And so we, we get trained in life, well, don't ask for too much. Because if I ask for a little bit, mom and dad might allow us, but if we ask for all this, they're going to look at me and roll their eyes and say, no, you didn't. You didn't ask for all that, right? So the idea is, I, I think that in our culture, we've become conservative. And so this verse, though, says, hey, look, God can, he can answer anything you can ask for. In fact, he commands us many places, ask, and it will be given unto you. He says, until now you have asked nothing, ask, and you will receive. And so what are you asking God for? Because not only can he give you all that you ask, he also can give you all that you can ask or think. He gives you all that you can ask or think. Again, look at verse 20, all that you ask or think. If you have an NIV tonight, it says all you can ask or imagine. And so the idea is like, not only ask for it, think about all that you could ever ask. Are you asking God for those kind of things? Not, not, maybe you're not yet. You're just thinking, potentially, I could ask God for this and this. He's saying in this passage, do it. Ask God for all that you could possibly ask or all that you could think about. Should I, should I be asking for a godly husband or a godly wife? Absolutely. Should I be asking for a scholarship to school? Why not? Should I be asking for an amazing marriage? Yeah. Should you be asking for salvation of our president and other world leaders? Absolutely. Should we be asking God for a revival in our church every day? Should you be asking God to be content in Christ exactly where he has you this moment? Yes. Ask. Think about the biggest thing you can ask for and ask for it because he says that he's able to answer all that you can ask and think. And then notice this, he can do this. He can do more than all you can ask or think. So he's going to do everything you ask in him, everything you can think. And he's like, I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to do more than that. Not only is he going to do more than all we can ask or think, he says in this text, he's going to do abundantly more than all you can ask or think. And so he's going to do all you ask, all you think, more than that, abundantly more. Then he goes one more time, exceedingly exceedingly abundantly more than all you can ask or think. My friends, this is this doxology of praise where Paul is overcome in this prayer as he's gone through and taught us an example and a model of how to pray God-glorifying prayers that we got to keep asking and expecting God. And why will he do this? How can he do this? Well, it's according to his power that is at work within us. And then in verse uh, 21, he wants to do it to, uh, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And so there's an idea here that God's glory will be on display in the church. And it's interesting here because it says God's glory being on display in the church and in Christ, which means here in this passage, if you look at the grammar, he's placing the church on par with Christ. 
which kind of seems almost like, mm, I don't know about that. I think I put Christ way up here and the church down here. But that's not what the book of Ephesians is about. The book of Ephesians is about elevating our view of the church because, get this, why, why can he put the church and Christ on the same plane? And, and the answer is because Christ is the head of the church, so they're together. You can't have a head without a body. Uh, we could also say Christ is the groom to the bride, which is the church. And so you can't have a bride without a body. We're connected. And so all of these kind of prayers, as we function this way as a church, exalt God to Him be all the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And then he says, basically, may he, this glory be on display forevermore, right? Forever and ever, may all the glory be to God. Well, my friends, tonight, this is just an example of how we need to pray. I'm afraid that too many times you and I get caught in our prayer life asking for the same old, same old things like, Lord God, we pray you keep everybody safe out on the field tonight as we play our games. We pray that you would lead, guide, and direct us. And, you know, and we pray for this and that and the other, and sometimes we miss what prayer, how rich prayer could be. And so if nothing else tonight, you could start saying, you know what, Adam, I'm, I'm not sure how to pray. Well, there's, there's, there's Jesus teaching us in the disciples' prayer. There's these two prayers in Ephesians. There's prayers in Philippians. There's prayers throughout the Psalms that you could take and just pray through those prayers over and over again until as you're praying, you begin to pray for things that have such a powerful spiritual focus that your discipline in prayer would never, ever be the same. Well, let me, let me just end tonight, if I can, by telling you just one, one final story. And uh, it's a story uh, that, uh, that, that, uh, that Harry Einside tells of meeting a very godly man early in his ministry. The man was dying of tuberculosis, and Ironside had gone to visit him, and his name was Andrew Fraser. And he could barely speak above a whisper. His lungs were almost gone. Yet he said, young man, are you trying to preach Christ? Are you not? Yes, I am, replied Ironside. Well, he said, sit down a little and let us talk together about the Word of God. And he opened his Bible, and until his strength was gone, he opened up one passage after another, teaching truths that Ironside at the time had never seen or appreciated. Before long, tears were running down Ironside's cheeks, and he asked, where did you get these things? Can you tell me where I can find a book that will open them up to me? Did you get them in a seminary or a college? Fraser replied, my dear young man, I learned these things on my knees, on the mud floor in a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland, where with my Bible open before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and to open the Word to my heart. And He taught me more on my knees, on that mud floor, than I could ever have learned in all the seminaries or colleges in the world." Well, my friends, that's part of the secret of God. It's, yes, He speaks to us through the Bible. We speak to Him through prayer. But it's as we pray that we meditate on His Word so it becomes opened up and revealed to us to a greater degree. 
Are you full of God tonight? You could be fuller. It is not sheer intelligence, outstanding instruction, or academic degrees. It's about time spent with God. And so are you sitting at Christ's feet today? Are you praying? If you're not, I pray that in light of this message that you would be stirred deep in your heart and that you would make time to pray. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these reminders to us tonight from a familiar passage of, of, uh, of prayer. I pray, God, that you would just encourage our hearts and you would allow us, Lord, that those of us who feel convicted, starting with me, about uh, my, my, uh, my sheer lack of, of faithful praying, that you would help me, God, be a better example, even with my wife and with my kids. Uh, God, that we would think about how to pray scriptural, biblical prayers, that we would be stirred by, by what we've heard tonight to ask you and honor you with the magnitude of our request, knowing that you're able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all we can ask or think. And so tonight, God, I pray that you would, again, just teach us to pray, help us to be faithful in this spiritual discipline, because it's such a delight, it's such a joy to devote ourselves to you in prayer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.